Hello, welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast. The World Cup is into the knockout stage. We've had plenty of slip-ups, surprises, valiant performers, and lots to discuss. Today's episode, unsurprisingly, focuses squarely on the young players who have lit up the tournament over in Qatar this winter, of which there have been many. Um, Between my distinguished guests and I, we've picked out five players worthy of analysis. Uh, But without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Mr. FM Analysis, Lee Scott, back to the Scouted Pod. Um, it's been too long, my friend, too long. Plenty to catch up on and go over, but first of all, how are things? What's what's new? <laughs> uh, one or two things are new. Uh, thanks very much for having me back, Joe. I know it's been a while. I think it's been over a year since we've done one of these together. Um, obviously, for that year, for people that don't know, I was I was working for Aberdeen Football Club as a recruitment analyst, um, working there part-time and also doing the work for Total Football Analysis and the consultancy side that I was doing before. So... Really, I didn't have time for for podcasts or recording or thinking about much <laughs> other than that, to be honest. But I've got a little bit more time now, so time to get back on, I think. Yeah, too, right. And and uh, obviously, there's there's a little bit of a new role as well. Uh, Chief Scout, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was approached to interview for the role of Chief Scout at Velez Club de Football in the Spanish fourth tier. Um, I think it just made sense from a career point of view kind of as the next step obviously Aberdeen are playing at a slightly higher level I mean, you you can debate the the merits of the Scottish top flight in the Spanish fourth tier all you like but in terms of player acquisition they they were looking at a different level of player um but the opportunity to go into a club like Velez where there are so many smart people involved that have got a lot more experience and a lot more knowledge around football than I have um, it was kind of a no-brainer when it came down to it. Excellent stuff. Well, I'm I'm delighted from a selfish perspective. I'm sure that the people who who've enjoyed the, uh, the the Lee Scott and I episodes in previous previous many moons ago, maybe um, are going to be very very pleased with uh, with the fact that you're you're back on the scouted pod. And what better to to discuss than than the World Cup, the biggest stage of all? Um, as I as I was saying, we've we've picked out five players. Um, you've gone with three, and I've I've gone with two. Um, that have just really, really dazzled uh, at, at the World Cup, um, and I mean, it'll probably a, a few. My two in particular probably won't come as, as too much of a surprise. So we'll throw people a curveball first, and we'll we'll let you get get us on the way. But who is your uh, who's your first pick, Lee? My first one's probably the, the least curveball of them all. I've gone with two of the players I've picked just for a bit of um, bit of context are central defenders. Um, love a central defender. I can't help it. It's part of the sportsman in me, I think. But the player we'll start with is, is one of the players that I think has been one of the standouts of the whole tournament, and that's Mohamed Kudus of Ghana and, of course, of Ajax. Um, Kudus only just qualifies. I think that he... I think I thought he was 23, but I've just clicked his transfer market profile to tell him he's 22, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, maybe he is 22 and still okay for scouting for a little bit longer. Um he has absolutely lit up the the tournament for me. Whenever Ghana have played, he has been far and away their most influential and best player. And playing in the role, I think, that suits him the best, playing as that almost free eight, number 10 kind of hybrid player, capable and allowed to go out to the wide areas or come into the half spaces, attack the penalty area, obviously. We've seen him pick up a couple of goals. Um, but a marked difference from where he was at club level, where at the start of the season he was extremely close to signing for Everton because he was so out of favour at Ajax. Um, 
before being given a chance at Ajax as a number nine. And he's a funny one because he's came out and been quite vocal in that he doesn't like playing as number nine. He it says himself that he hates the position. Um, so it'll be intriguing to see when we go back to club football how they use him. But I actually think that Kudus might have been a player that we've talked about in this podcast before, back when he first moved to Ajax. Yeah, I think it was. Um, it was. I think it was the. Oh, might have been two years ago now, but it was um, the the sort of the, the Netherlands episode. It might have been a Belgium and Netherlands episode that we did um, a while back, where we picked him out amongst you know Ryan Gravenberg and and and, and many others um, as somebody to, to sort of watch in the Eredivisie. Um, mainly because he can, he comes from that right to dream pathway, and and people who've who've listened to to the most recent episode um, of the Scouted Pod will will be familiar with the name Kudus because uh, we obviously spoke to to Derek Boateng, uh, former Ghana international, former World Cup player, um, who who now works as a as a scout at, at Right to Dream, and he's obviously uh, very very big on 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 his Ghanaian football. Um, and um, if if anybody hasn't listened to that, it's a great great. Uh, interview from uh, from Derek about um, Ghana's chances at the World Cup. I know they're out now, but I mean the, some of their games were really entertaining, and and you know he he does sort of temper the expectation that maybe this is a team or that this Ghana team is one which needs a little bit more bedding in um, because I think the defense has played barely any football together, uh, and I think you could see that at times during the World Cup. I think it's fair to say, um, but certainly is is packed with with lots of young players. But um, back to Kudus, yeah, I mean that. That Everton move, or that was sort of in the offing, that would have been a. I mean, at the time, it might have looked like a sidestep because he wasn't really playing in the same vein that he is currently with Ajax. Um, and you know, a move to the Premier League is a move to the Premier League. You can't sniff at it. But I think it definitely would have been a, a mistake given the way that Everton have played this season um, and the way that Kudus has, has really taken off with with Ajax and and taken off with with Ghana as well. Yeah, and I think that. Um, obviously, I think Everton fans will look back on this with with a great deal of regret because I don't think I do think the market's going to open up for him again. Um, probably not this winter, but definitely in the summer, he's a player who I think has done himself no harm at all in terms of transfer value and the kind of move that he's going to get based on this tournament, which is something that we do tend to see with major international tournaments. Quite often, player stock will rise. Um. I do see him as a Premier League player going forward. Uh, obviously, strongly linked. I believe the most recent ones are Spurs and the other half of Merseyside. Um, I think if he pops up in Liverpool red, a few Everton fans are going to be taking it a lot harder than they would otherwise, given how close they were to getting him over the line. But he's such an interesting guy because he's quite unconventional with the way that he speaks and the, the way that he talked about the game. I've already spoken about the fact that He's stated that he hates playing up front, even though that's the position that he's been allowed to play, if you like, at Ajax. And, and when he does so, he kind of plays as up front as almost a false nine figure because he's still got those tendencies to drop back off the front line and to get between the lines and, and to find little pockets to receive. And he causes great danger doing that. But he also came out and did an interview and he said that he doesn't think that Neymar's better than him. He's just, uh, I think the, the quote was, he's not better than me. He's just more famous than me. Mm. So certainly not, you know, lacking a little bit of confidence there. No, it doesn't seem to be a shrinking violet. And and obviously we didn't it, it didn't seem as though he was he was that type of player at the World Cup either. You know, he didn't shirk any challenges. He's 
he's got this lovely spin about him where he can just evade trouble by t- sort of taking the ball and sweeping it the opposite way to which his, his body has fainted the way the defender thinks he's going to go. Um, but Kudus, I think, I mean, was it two goals that he got in that South Korea game? Um, he was, I mean, he, he was the standout for me in Ghana's opening match, uh, for, for Ghana, that is. And then he kind of doubled down on that with, with the performance in the, in the second game. Um, obviously, going out in, in the third group match, not ideal, but still, I mean, in terms of a pure showcase, he certainly um, certainly endeared himself to, to many a sporting director, I think, in Europe's top five leagues um, from, from this tournament. And we know how much of a catalyst the World Cup can be uh, for, for players who are maybe on the brink of, of getting a, a big move. And, and when you're at such a developmental club like Ajax and you're still 22, 23 years old, as you said, Louis, the, the potential is immense for him to, to go to one of these clubs. And I just hope that he does make the right the right move because um, he's clearly a player with a lot of talent. Um, but I do feel as though he's the type of individual who will need the, the support network around him because otherwise, I, I mean, I'm basing this purely off my assumption that if he had gone to Everton, he probably wouldn't have looked anywhere near as good as he has so far this season, even though he'd be playing in a better league and, you know, a, a, a team which was... I don't know, has, has individual quality, but maybe isn't set up in the best way. Um, so I, I do hope that if he does move on from Ajax, and that's not saying he should, um, that I, I hope he gets a, a move to a, a club who are maybe going to cater to his to his, his strengths. Um, moving on to, to the second player on our list, uh, and I'll go with, with one of mine. Um, and this will be the, the least surprising uh, pick from the World Cup in terms of under-23 players who've stood out, because... I think it's fair to say that he's pretty much on course to be uh, the, the young player of the tournament um, because the, the performances that he's put in, the influence that he's had on games, the, the goal contributions that he's made um, have been just stratospheric for a player of his age at, at this stage. Um, you know, 19 years of age, Jude Bellingham, and he's running games. You know, admittedly, and not, this is not to, to take the shine off things, admittedly that, you know, there has been a talent deficit in England's games in terms of the opponents that, that England have faced. Um, but, you know, name me another teenager or other teenagers who've done similar at major tournaments. You know, they're, by and large, their first major tournament where they make a, make a, a real impact on the pitch. Um, you know, Pedri, 20 at the 2021 Euros or 2020 Euros. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm hard pushed to, to think further back for especially not in, in England uh, footballing history you know you, you look at maybe Michael Owen in that 1998 um, World Cup or, or Wayne Rooney in 2004 but those performances are always skewed by goals or moments which are you know really stand out I'm thinking you know Rooney's goal against Croatia Michael Owen's goal against uh, Argentina with Bellingham I know that he got the opener against Iran but it's his overall play which I've been so so impressed with and it shouldn't come as a surprise because he's been doing this so regularly for, for, for Borussia Dortmund. You know, you don't captain a club like that in Germany, um, you know, from time to time, if you're not a special player. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, just the threat he carries from deep positions, you know, bursting into pockets, creating pockets just through sheer force, you know, having the composure to, to play the right ball at the right moment on the biggest stage at 19 is just, is just immense. Yeah, I think when you look at players from a scouting perspective, when you look at central midfielders, you're you're almost looking at them in terms of what role you think that they could play going forward for your team. So because of midfielders, they, they 
a midfielder can play a number of different roles. If you're looking for a six, for example, are you looking for a defensive six who will break up the play, fill spaces, cut passing lanes and work across the pitch to cover for fullbacks? Are you looking for a six who's that deep-lying playmaker who will get on the ball and act as the pivot being in possession in terms of being able to play the passes and, and find little angles to play around the corner? Are you looking for a number eight who's more of a playmaker or a number eight who's going to be a free eight who's going to break forward in the area more regularly? And what's really interesting about Bellingham is that he's all of them. And you don't find that. that that's not something that you find certainly readily and it's not something you find in a player as young as Bellingham is for a player who obviously is still very, very young, but he's already built such a body of experience from breaking into the Birmingham first team. And I believe he captained Birmingham towards the end of that season as well before he moved to Borussia Dortmund. So straight away, you're starting to look at a young player who who has evidence, not only in terms of video, but in data as well, in terms of the different things that he could do in the pitch. And you really start to see that surface in this World Cup with that performance. I think the, the performance the other night when he, he set up the second goal, the third goal? Or second, I think it was the second goal. Second, um, the the one for goal, Kane, yeah. Kane's goal. Um, when he picked up the ball in midfield, he didn't get the direct assist, but it was all about him because he was the one that broke up the opposition attack outside England's area. He's the one that was able to drive forward and break a line in possession. He showed that he's two-footed because he shifted the ball from one foot to the other before making the pass. And then he showed the composure and the timing and the appreciation of what's going on around him to pick the pass to Foden when Foden had had a chance to develop his run and get into a position that was really going to hurt the opposition. And as soon as he gets the ball in that area, he's just so difficult to stop. And part of that's physical because he's a big lad for, for his age. He's tall, powerful, quick, long limbs, which always help in midfield. I always think back to Patrick Vieira for being kind of the king of that, having really long legs and telescopic legs that are able to reach around corners. Yaya Toure was the same. Um, Bellingham's got that about him, but he's also got a really broad and athletic frame, which makes him difficult to dislodge off the ball when an opposition player tries to go shoulder to shoulder with him. He's not going to lose his balance or lose his composure easily. And I think that the way that he has really ran the England midfield, despite, I mean, Declan Rice has been there, and I think Declan Rice has had a fantastic tournament as well. Um, Jordan Henderson got a lot of stick, but he played very well the other night too. But I think that the real catalyst for the England midfield and the player who's kind of elevating their midfield to the next level has been Bellingham. But the issue is going to be that there's just no way he's going to stay at Borussia Dortmund for the next two years. Um, they're very much a club who excel when it comes to identifying and signing young talent, but they also excel in maximising value when they sell a player. So they'll already be looking at it and, and realising the market is going to develop rapidly for Bellingham. So I think towards the end of this season, we're going to start to see a transfer saga start to develop around him. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think this summer could certainly, or the, the, the coming summer, will certainly be um, the the Bellingham transfer summer. Um, I think that's that's fairly likely. You know, I just he strikes me. You know, in terms of the way that England have had box to box midfielders in the purest sense. You know, you look at the the influence that he that he has. I mean, he's, he's almost Lampardian in sort of the way that you know he breaks into the final third and and in terms of shot volume, always appearing on the edge of the box. 
um, both for, for England and Borussia Dortmund, probably more so for Dortmund. Um, and then he's what you were saying about those long limbs, you know, he's, he's almost a bit like early early career Gerard-like in his stature, you know, just having that, that gangliness that, that Gerard had sort of, you know, pre-2006 and, um, you know, the, the confidence to physically dominate midfielders of, of greater experience. Um, you know, and, and, and also one, thing's, one of the things just sort of like diving into the stats of Bellingham as well, you know, you wouldn't say he's, he's your archetypal prolific dribbler, would you? But, you know, he's in the top 4% of midfielders across Europe's top five leagues for dribbles completed, which is, is immense. And the top 2% for dribbles attempted. Um, and, and also the top 1% of midfielders for fouls won. And that's from near enough 4,000 minutes. You know, I, I, I don't think people realise how good you have to be to be that consistent. Never at, at 26, never mind at 19. It's just, it's, it's obscene. Yeah, it is. I think that we need to pause for a second and recognise the word Lampardian, though. Yeah, um, well, it kind of just rolled off the tongue a little bit. I was wondering, I was sort of furrowing my brow a little bit there as, <laughs> as I said it. I was like, oh, does that, does that sound right? Um, just touching on what you said about his, his dribbling numbers and his ability to carry the ball, that's something that I think is really underrated um, in terms of central midfielders. The ability for a player who plays in that role in the congested areas of the pitch to be able to go past a player, as soon as that happens in the midfield, as soon as you have the ball and you you dribble past her or outplay your direct opponent and move past them, you open up the whole game in terms of passing angles, passing areas, how you could hurt the opposition. Um, in that sense, I think his ability to shift the ball in tight areas is very similar to a player that, that we were going to discuss but decided not to, Jamal Musiala, Bayern Munich. Um, Bellingham's ability to shift the ball quickly in those areas really has been something that, that stood out, I think, across his time in the Bundesliga and in his tournament too. You've seen a couple of times he's received the ball under pressure and because he's got that ability to play off two feet, He's just managed to shift the ball from one to the other to make sure that he's shielding the ball properly and then to get spun round and past a player. And once a player as physically powerful as Bellingham gets past the, the opponent in the central areas, that's why he's winning so many fouls. Because it gets to the point you either have to choose between allowing this player to start to build up momentum towards your goal or you create what is known as a professional foul, where you either go for the trip or the tug or, or just slide them down. I think that's really underrated for midfielders. It's something that I often look for when I'm looking for a number eight, especially I want a number eight who can beat a player centrally. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I think before we end up dedicating this entire podcast to Jude Bellingham, uh, we should move on to your to your second pick, Lee. Um, I, I don't know which one you want to go for here, but you've got two central defenders to pick from. Yeah, that's right. I think we'll we'll go with probably the most random of the two and the one that perhaps people haven't seen a lot of before the tournament, and that's Jakub Kiwior of Spezia in Serie A in Poland. Um, Kiwior is a really interesting player, 22 years old. I've been following his career since before he moved to Italy. Um, he was previously at MSK Zilnia, Um a club who have a real reputation for developing, for identifying, developing and selling young players. Um, a really interesting market for young players over there. And Spezia paid a fee of over €2 million Euros to get Kiwi across to Serie A. Um, initially, when he came across, I think he was a little bit slow to build up playing time. 
but over the course of the last 12 to 18 months, his playing time has developed to the, the stage now where he's been heavily linked to a move to the likes of Milan and Juventus. Um, obviously, it's quite common in Serie A for these big clubs to identify and sign players from the, the smaller clubs in Serie A, if you like. And Kiwior is one that I would strongly suggest we'll be moving on, even potentially this winter. I think we could see the deal done then if, if one of those two clubs are, are keen on gazumping the other, if you like, and getting him away. Um, Kiwior's played this tournament for Poland, a Poland team who have been, it's fair to say, despite reaching the last 16, I don't think anybody was particularly impressed by them. Um, I think they... They underperformed their level of talent. Let's just put it that way. And, and that's not just speaking about Lewandowski, who obviously ended up with two goals, um, potentially should have had three. But I think even the likes of Zielinski, who's one of the best midfielders in, in Serie A and in Europe, has underperformed too. But I think Kiwior is one that comes out with more credit. Um, Polish defence was relatively resolute. And I think Kiwior played a part in that. He showed his defensive ability more than anything else in this tournament in terms of his blocks position in the area playing in a deep block in terms of denying space and shifting across to create and maintain spacing with the other defenders in Poland but of what we didn't see as much of what we do see at Spezia and what we've seen throughout his career is his ability on the ball um, very much almost a stereotypical ball-playing defender, if you like. He's got the, the capacity to step out of defence and play those progressive passes that break a line or to play those diagonal passes that, that access the opposite side of the field. Um, he's so good in the ball that he also plays as a six, um, not only a central defender. He's played as a six for Spezia too, um, and not purely a defensive one, as we are speaking about just before with Bellingham. He's also got the ability to play in that position. He's not just going in there when you're you're facing a hard team and you essentially want to have an auxiliary defender playing in midfield. He's got more than enough ability in the ball to, to create danger and make things happen himself. But it's his blend for me of athleticism, game understanding, game experience at this young age, 22 years old. That's what makes him really interesting to me. I think he's going to go somewhere to a bigger club, to a Champions League level club next and I think when he does, people will really start to sit up and take notice. Yeah, one of the things that I do really like about Kiwior in, in terms of the, you know, off the pitch is that, at least based on transfer market anyway, is the, the, the transfer fees over sort of an incremental, I think it's over maybe a three-year period, um, where he goes from Anderlecht's under-21s to Podbrasova in, in Slovakia for €10,000. And that was in January 2019. And then from, from Podrasova to, to Zelina uh, for €250,000, which is a nice little uh, incremental increase. And then it's the, the €2.5 or €2 million Euro signing from Zelina to, to Spezia, which um, is, is, is a, again, another incremental increase. And you, from what, based on what you're saying there, Lee, you know, any move that he does get to a, sort of a, a team who are going to be playing European football, um, then it's it's most likely for a 22-year-old international centre-half who's done reasonably well at the World Cup um, with his stature and, and the fact that, you know, he is just, he's, he's a, I don't know how you'd put it, he's, he's just very um, pliable in a, in a very resolute defence. Um, I think you, you kind of are looking again at another maybe 10 times that 
um, or, or five times or seven times or whatever that two and a half million euro sum. Um, so it's nice to see that 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 you know the 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 transfer value has reflected his his growing importance in the game. But you know he was one who I wasn't overly familiar with. I kind of knew of him when he arrived at, at Spezia. Um, or rather, I knew of him because he'd arrived at Spezia, um, but um, wasn't really familiar with his game. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that, that that there were two takeaways that I had from from Poland's World Cup campaign, and one was that their manager, whose name I will not try and pronounce because <laughs> it's it is a very complex and very Polish name, um, he dresses like he looks like he's in the Politburo, um, and then you've also got the fact that Poland were very. Um, I'd say dour is probably the right word. You know, they they were fairly uninspiring, but they got the job done just to get through. And then in the round of 16, were were, were just simply outclassed. Um, but I think the the dourness, if that's if that's a word, um, a lot of that comes down to just how resolute, as you said, that they were in in defence. Yeah, and part of that's down to I think Sejny and Goal had a a really good tournament as well. Um, somebody who has obviously been almost forgotten by Arsenal fans because when he left, there he was so inconsistent. But he went to Italy, went to Serie A, and went to Juventus, and really has gone from strength to strength in terms of being a top class goalkeeper. Um, I think that Poland will feel as though they've missed a trick or missed a chance here because I think they could have had a much stronger tournament than they have. Um, you have to question how many more tournaments Alexa Lewandowski is going to make. Will he make the next one? Not entirely sure, if you will. Um, potentially, if he drops back deep a little bit more, almost into a 10 role. But they have a lot of talent, and I think they. what I really like about Poland, and I've always liked scouting in Poland, because there is young talent there. The issue that they have domestically in Poland is that quite often the young talent doesn't necessarily get the game time that it needs. But once you find a player in the Polish top flight who is playing regular time and is young and, and is attainable, then there are really interesting opportunities for clubs to go in and access that market. Two right. Um, and, and moving on to, to my second pick, uh, my final pick um, of, of the World Cup. Uh, and while I will say this, you know, we uh, I decided to cut Jamal Musiala from, from the list. Um, he does deserve an honourable mention. He probably deserves an entire episode, to be honest, um, because he's just been—he was electric, and he was my pick for young player of the tournament uh, beforehand. But I suppose Germany had other ideas. Um, they, you know, the, the, I think it was the thirteen dribbles that he attempted or completed against Costa Rica—absolutely mental figures. Um, but he's just such an exciting player, and I'm sure we'll we'll get to discuss him at some point in the future um, because he's not going away anytime soon. Um, my my second player is is one who uh, again I wasn't overly familiar with uh, before the World Cup. I'd say the Primera Liga in Portugal has always been a bit of a blind spot, and I've always found it difficult to to engage with um, South American football when it's been on because of the the time difference. Um, so Enzo Fernandez, the 21 year old uh, Argentina midfielder, um, he kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Um, not under everybody's radar, I'm fairly sure, but um, definitely mine. Um, but having sort of watched his games uh, for, uh, at the World Cup and also having gone back and sort of looked at some of his clips for Benfica this season, um, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, we'll, we'll call him Argentina's launch pad um, because now 
now that I've said Lampardian for Bellingham, I'm, I'm starting to get a little <laughs> bit carried away with myself here. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that, that Fernandez didn't start Argentina's first two games, but started their final group game and the round of 16 tie against Australia um, based on the outcome of their matches. Because six minutes after Saudi Arabia's second goal in their 2-1 win uh, in that opening fixture, Fernandez comes on. Since then, Argentina, at the time of recording, hadn't conceded until Fernandez himself then put through his own net against Australia in what was, sorry Steve, um, nothing more than a consolation. Uh, re- making reference there to, to Stephen Ganavis, uh, our, our editor-in-chief at Scouted, who um, was, was over in Qatar actually. Um, and uh, was 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 then in uh, in Melbourne's Federation Square, I believe, for the uh, for the celebrations over Denmark. Um, but with with Fernandez, it just seems as though everything, and I mean absolutely everything, goes through him. Um, that's why I'm calling him sort of the launch pad because it's just it, it's not that his defensive volume is is anything to write home about, but it's on the ball, and that's why I think he thrives so well in a team which is always going to dominate possession which is what he does with Benfica, because as many of you would expect, you know, Benfica are obviously going to dominate the ball in, in, in their domestic league, uh, and Argentina as well, in, especially in the group stage and, and round of 16. Um, you know, I mean, there is a Benfica in Primera Liga tax, I think we have to apply here. But, you know, go and take a look, if you haven't already, go and take a look at his, his full scouting report on, on fbref.com. Uh, just, just go and do it. It is a sea of green. You know, passes completed, passes attempted, short, medium, and long progressive passes. I think he's averaging around ten progressive passes uh, per ninety um, for Benfica over the past year. Which, again, I'm saying about the Primera League attacks and Benfica being ball dominant. But even still, that's once every nine, ten minutes. He's he's essentially breaking lines uh, from from an advanced position. Um, you know. He's got high-value chance creation. He showed that for Argentina as well. Um, very nice and well-taken goal against Mexico, it has to be said, um, for, for the more traditionalists. Um, and then, yeah, again, with that, that progressive passing, both accuracy and volume, um, you know, he's, he's, he's got it. He seems to have it have it all. Yeah, he's a fantastic player. Um, I think that historically, Benfica and Porto have been really good at identifying and signing talent from South America in particular. I think Benfica, more than Porto, moved away from that for a period of about five or six years when they kind of turned their attention to Eastern Europe and even Central Europe in terms of where their signings were coming from. But it says a lot that they've been a lot better since they kind of went back to that South American market again. And Enzo Fernandez is, is without a doubt, the cornerstone of that. Um, I think just touching on Argentina first, I think that they have been surprising and, and probably disappointing in the tournament so far. Um, I think obviously you take the Saudi Arabia game out of it. They they were so they were so casual on the ball that it was making me upset watching them because everyone talked about how high the Saudi Arabia line was in the first half of that match, and it was the quality of the pass that was letting Argentina down time and time again. The runs were being made to break that last line, but the player in possession was just taking too long to play the pass. And I think it's marked that since Enzo Fernandez came into that team, there's been much better intensity in the centre of the park for Argentina. Um, and I think that's down to his style of play. He's, it's funny because he's quite similar to Jude Bellingham in that 
He's capable of being the destroyer, the destructor. He's capable of being the playmaker. And as we saw with, with a fantastic goal at the end of the group stage, he's capable of, of finding a route to goal as well. Um, I would say that after he scored that goal at the World Cup and he hit across the ball in the far corner, I did see a lot of people on social media who are perhaps not quite as up-to-date with how he plays, saying that he was going to be the next Messi, next Ronaldo in terms of goals and, and goal scoring. And that's just a reaction, I think, that you get at the World Cup where you get people from who are more, let's say, on the casual side of, of football fandom watching the games and maybe overreacting to little things. He's not somebody who's going to score regular goals for you. But in terms of the, the player in the middle third who's able to access the final third, I think that's what he gives both Benfica and Argentina and spades. He's got the ability, as you said, to get on the ball and break a line and find the angle, the pass, and drive through the line as well. Um, that really makes him difficult to stop. And he's so combative when when you see him engage in duels. So if he's got the ball and somebody tries to win it from him, it's very difficult to dispossess. Different to Bellingham. Bellingham is a bit more poised and, as I said before, long legs. Enzo Fernandez is, is all motion and quick feet and throwing his body in the way and, and getting past people used a bit more physicality, if you like. Um, but I do think that he's another one who's, whose market is going to be growing based on this tournament. Um, but he feels more like one who would be, I think Premier League clubs will be interested, but he feels like a move to La Liga or even the very top, top, top end of Serie A would, would make more sense. I've got two takeaways from from what you've just said about about Enzo Fernandez. One is that um, I I didn't see the uh, the reaction online to, to from people saying that he's going to be the next Messi. I, f- I feel as though I should, you know, become like Alan Partridge and be like, you know, no, stop getting Enzo Fernandez wrong. <laughs> I sounded more like Mark Goldbridge there than Alan Partridge. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of crossover between the two. Um, but as as well as that, a more I don't know. A more romantic point than, than Alan Partridge would be um, the, the the book by Jonathan Wilson, Angels with Dirty Faces, um, which sort of describes the the footballing culture in in Argentina. And I I don't claim to know anything about Enzo Fernandez's upbringing. Uh, I don't know whether he was the son of a wealthy baron or he was one of these the the pibes, um, you know the, the 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 boys with the cara sucias, the dirty faces um, from from. That we see, you know, the likes of Carlos Tevez, Diego Maradona, those types of players, their backgrounds and upbringings. But he does, I know what you mean, he does have that that tenacity, which is a little bit different um, to, to Jude Bellingham, um, because Bellingham doesn't need to have that, whereas Fernandez less, lesser in stature, um, but certainly not lacking in heart. Um, and I suppose it comes down to the old adage, you know, it's not about the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Um, but yeah, I think the fact that my two picks have been both midfielders who you could comfortably play as sort of a six or an eight, um, then yeah, I think it's fair to say we know what I've been enjoying watching at the World Cup, uh, to say the least. Um, we'll go on to the the final pick of our five, um, and I have to say, when I saw you mention it, I was a little bit surprised because he's been somewhat, I wouldn't say controversial, Um I do understand why people are maybe not as high on him as, as other central defenders, um, because he does have some areas of his game which you do make you go, oh, sometimes. But at the same time, your defensive fundamentals, 
there aren't many who are better sort of dominant centre halves than, than this man, are there? No, they're not. And and my final pick is Strahina Pavlovic, the twenty one year old Serbian centre half. Um I think in this tournament, one of the takeaways that I've had, especially from the group stage, is that teams at international level should never play with a back three because it just causes them so many problems. I think I tore my hair out a little bit watching the likes of Denmark, especially even the Netherlands, in terms of how they they build and create their attacks from the back three. It was ponderous to a point of almost boredom for both of those sides. They really struggled to find anybody who could progress the ball. I think Serbia did so. Obviously, Serbia failed to qualify from the group stage despite being bigged up and built up by a lot of people, myself included, before the tournament. I thought Serbia were going to have a good tournament. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> but they played the back three, and Strahina Pavlovic was the left-sided centre-back in that back three. But I think that what he gave them was the ability that he did have to break a line. I mean, first of all, he's he's defensively dominant and physically dominant. Um, stands at 194 centimeters, which I think, if I'm doing the conversion right, is about six foot four and a half. Um, and he also looks like a centre half. He's got that in the manager Vidic look around about him, with the the shaved head and and just looks like he wants to fight all the time, which is kind of what you get from Serbian centre halves at times. Um, he has the ability, he's got the mobility to, to play at left-sided centre-back. My concern with him, and I included him because I'm interested in him, I'm interested in the way that his career's progressed to this point. My problem with him is that I think his effectiveness falls away when you try to play him as the, the left-sided central defender at a back four, as opposed to the left-sided central defender at a back three. I think those two roles, although they, they do sound the same, that they're not quite the same. Um, you need to have a lot more mobility to play that position in the back three. Whereas in the back four, I think you've got a lot less freedom in terms of what you can do in possession of the ball. But so far, Pavlovic, is, he's been around the block. He's played for Partizan, developed at Partizan Belgrade in their youth system. He was then signed by Monaco at the time when Monaco were hoovering up all the young players around um, Eastern Europe and around European football. He spent time alone at Cercle Bruges, who have a partnership with Monaco, where a lot of the young players at Monaco go there. And then a loan transfer to Basel in Switzerland as well. And then this summer was the most interesting one of all, because he made the move to, to RB Salzburg. Um, people who've heard us talk in these podcasts before, Joe, will know that we both really like RB Salzburg. Um, I don't think they get a lot wrong when it comes to their recruitment of young players in particular. And the fact that they saw a player go to Monaco and not make the impact that he was supposed to, but then signed him anyway and a €7 million Euro fee probably got him at a good price too, I think. I think his current market value, according to transfer market, is up at €20 million, Euros, which kind of tells you a little bit about how the inflation in World Cup can come about. Um but he's a player who I think has a lot of promise. I do worry and I do wonder how much his career and his development is going to be hampered by the fact that he will be much more successful for me playing in a back three system than a back four. Yeah, Salzburg are fairly renowned for, for getting most things right um, in terms of uh, player ID and, and, and recruitment. And, and, you know, 7 million euros, was it? I mean, that's not a, a huge outlay for them when you consider... 
a lot of their sales and the likely resale value that they'll they'll get on Pavlovich if he continues at the at the same rate. Um, I, I I do wonder whether um, him coming up through the ranks at Partizan and him, you know, being a bit of a nut and having a shaved head and being just enormous has anything to do with him being a Partizan as a youngster. I feel as though there might be quite a few other players who who've had that sort of upbringing, uh, at least the football in education. Um, at Partizan, and anybody who's who's been to a game, who's been lucky enough to go to a game um, in Bel- in the Belgrade derby, or has seen you know the the scenes effectively um, at those games, will will understand what I'm going on about. Um, anybody in Australia who saw the the, the flares in Federation Square in Melbourne um, after uh, after the, the the wins over Tunisia and Denmark, um, it looks look pretty much like that at every Belgrade derby, um, but. Yeah, he's uh, Pavlovich. He's he's a, he's a bit of a brute, but um, he's uh, I, I I hadn't actually considered what you well prior to you saying it, I hadn't really considered what you said about the the back three and the back four thing. Um, but yes, it it does make sense. Um, and yeah, uh, I think I'm gonna close out the episode by by agreeing with you, Lee. But it's been a pleasure to to have you back on. Um, if it has been a year since we last recorded, then that's absolutely flown by. Um, but. Um, hopefully won't leave it uh, as late uh, or rather as long um, next time that, that we get you on. I'm sure that we'll, uh, I'll, be, I'll be pestering you to, to come and talk about various things in the months that come. I know January will be busy for you, but uh, maybe after that. Um, but yeah, best of luck in, in the new role and, and, and let's hope that the World Cup continues to, to deliver the storylines and the, um, the excitement that it has done so far. Let's hope so. I think all we're missing the World Cup is a, a good Scotland team. I think that's about the tournament we laughing. <laughs> that and Colombia. I always like a World Cup when Colombia are involved and, and not having them there has felt a little bit odd this time around. No Scotland and no Colombia. It's, it's, it's a travesty, isn't it? It's not a World Cup, really, is it? The two things are fairly equivalent. Let's face it, the two countries are a party atmosphere wherever we go. Um, but thanks very much for having me back on, Joe. I appreciate it. Yeah, both liable to uh, a surprise defeat by Costa Rica as well, I think it's fair to say. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased that Scotland have managed to miss out on this time around. Um, I mean, hey, there was a Scotland representative uh, in the Australia team, which I kind of latched myself onto a little bit more than one, actually. There were two. More than there were one, two yeah. Two yeah, and Jason points. Cummins. Um, yeah, but unfortunately they're out now. Uh, and also Garan Cole, who was who was there as well. So I had a, a little bit of a Newcastle connection um, to to them as well. But um, no, no, it's been a pleasure to have you back on, Lee. And I hope everybody's enjoyed sort of this this whistle stop tour of uh, the the five World Cup standouts uh, for us at, at Scouted. Um, but yeah, we'll be back in the weeks to come uh, with more more episodes, uh, more topics, more clubs from around Europe and the rest of the world. And um, it might even might even go for a full World Cup debrief after the final. But um, yeah, stay safe, take care, and bye for now. Bye.